Welcome to the Italian Wine Podcast. I'm Cynthia Chaplin, and this is Voices. Every Wednesday, I will be sharing conversations with international wine industry professionals, discussing issues in diversity, equity, and inclusion through their personal experiences working in the field of wine. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe and rate our show wherever you get your pods. Good morning, everyone. This is Cynthia Chaplin for Voices, and I'm chatting today with Siobhan Ball, who's in Norway, which I'm going to ask her about later. Uh, normally, she's not in Norway. She uh, hails from Oregon and spends a lot of time in France. So this Norway gig has uh, got to be something interesting. The reason I wanted to talk to Siobhan is she was named one of Wine Enthusiast's Top 40 Under 40 Tastemakers in 2020. And she's been working in the hospitality industry for a very long time as a wine buyer and a manager and a wine director. And then she founded her own company called Dirty Radish Wine Tours. I love the name. Founded that in 2017. And she's connecting her wineries in France that she loves with wine people and wineries in Oregon where she lives. So very interesting backstory. I can't wait to uh, get this discussion going. So good morning, Siobhan. Good morning, Cynthia. So first of all, what the heck are you doing in Norway? Currently sitting next to a fire enjoying the snow falling. Oh my gosh, I'm so jealous. (laughs) It's so beautiful. I doubt this is a vacation. You're a busy person. I I know you don't take vacations. What are you doing there? Uh, So I am here working on a project that is slated to open in 2023. It is Arctic Landscape Hotels. So there's going to be a series of hotels and I'm helping to open the flagship hotel in a town that I still can't pronounce. It's a very remote island and I will be doing uh, the entire wine programming. That sounds fantastic and, and an idyllic place to be this time of year, too. So I'm so jealous. I, I did see snow on the Dolomites this morning as I was coming into work. So I'm starting to feel a little bit more festive, but not as much as you are. <laughs> um, so a big a big wine list to put together. Yes, a very big wine list to put together. Um, I'm really excited about flexing that part of my brain again. It's been a while since I've been able to do that. Um, but the project just sort of uh, came to me. It's a very roundabout story, but it came to me and uh, here I am. I'm in Molde, Norway right now, and literally the snow is falling. It's a lot of snow. It's really beautiful. That sounds amazing. The best projects always find their way to you in, in mysterious ways, for sure. I have to ask, as this is the Italian wine podcast, are you going to put Italian wines on this list? Is it going to be multinational? There will definitely be Italian wines on this list. Norway loves Italian wines, as do I. Um, It's going to be a very worldly wine list. Very worldly. Oh, fantastic. Well, I'm I'm going to have to hear about this and see this wine list when you get it put together. I love that part of the world. So I might even make a little trip up there when it opens. I have time to save up now if it's not till 2023. Please do. Well, let's let's chat about you while we're here together. You started off your career as a teenage waitress in Denny's. Uh, I love that because I started my career in hospitality as a ice cream puller in Dairy Queen in Ohio. So um, not the most auspicious start, but you ended up with a really thriving career in hospitality in Portland 
Um, and then you took off for France. What inspired that trip? It was a combination of things. So I had worked in restaurants um, off and on, probably from 15 to 25, kind of doing all sorts of different little odd sort of jobs. And at first I thought I was going to work in the back of the house. So in the kitchen side, and I did for a short period of time, but I was really young and it just didn't really fit for me at that time. And I worked on a cruise ship in Alaska. I'd worked in different styles of restaurants, but it it wasn't until I got into the fine dining um, at Le Pigeon that I really started to kind of understand and know that I had a passion for for that sort of service, that sort of wine knowledge and uh, being able to do that. At the time, I was still unsure about working in hospitality. So I was actually going back to school for a master's degree and they needed a language credit. I was working at a French restaurant, so I started taking French. I was 27. Makes sense. Good good choice. Makes sense. In 2000, late 2008, so December 2008, I had a really bad breakup. And a lot of people sometimes after they have a bad breakup, eat a lot of chocolate and order really terrible things on Amazon. But I instead applied to a university in France. And so in February of 2009, I applied to the University of Lyon 2. And by August of 2009, I was living in France. <laughs> I think that's an amazing way to deal with a breakup. I'm going to report to my daughters that they need to bear this in mind. Do not self-mutilate. Go get more education. <laughs> I think that's, yeah. that's a great, great idea. So you went from Oregon to France. Bad breakup. Uh, when you arrived in Lyon, which is a city that I love and where I studied wine a long time ago, what what was the next step? What was the road to recovery from breakup in Oregon while you were in France? So again, these, these sort of serendipitous things that happen. And I think if you just say yes more, it, it kind of works for you. But really what happened is at the time when I was working at Le Pigeon, Gabriel Rucker, who's the chef there, was dating his now wife, Hannah. And Hannah had a friend named Kelly, who was dating a French gentleman. And Gabe kept telling me, there's this woman you should meet who's moving to France. And Hannah kept telling Kelly, there's this woman who works with Gabe that you should meet who's moving to France. And both of us are thinking, what are the odds that we're going to live near each other? And as it turns out, not only were we moving within just a few days of each other, but we were moving within 30 minutes of each other. I to Lyon and her to Belleville, just north of Lyon, where she was moving to be with her then boyfriend, now husband, Aurelien Firaday, who's the export manager for a collective of Beaujolais producers called Terroir Original. Oh my gosh, utterly meant to be. So after just three weeks of arriving to Lyon, I took a train, one day train ride to go up and visit them and meet them for the very first time. And I wouldn't come home for four days because I spent the entire time driving around with them, meeting all of these incredible Beaujolais producers whose wines I had just been pouring in Oregon at Le Pigeon. And uh, that was sort of the bigger um, moment for me of being able to have that such an intimate connection with meeting these winemakers very quickly. And that set it off as far as me diving deeper into my already love of Beaujolais wine. That is fantastic. I, I am a big fan of wine heals all broken hearts for sure. So um, <laughs> no, that's, that's amazing. So Beaujolais, it's so interesting because tends to be, in my opinion, one of the more under 
braided sort of regions of France. And, and I'm a fan as well, particularly Gamay, the different work that gets done with Beaujolais there. So how long did you stay? What did you end up doing while you were there? So I went to, I ended up living in Lyon for about a year. And then I moved to a small village just outside of Geneva, where I worked in a vineyard for several months. But while I was there, I was studying French, obviously, and gastronomy and viticulture. And uh, thankfully, Thanks to Kelly and Aurelian, I was able to, again, keep spending a lot of time in Beaujolais and meeting these winemakers and learning about the wines of, of Beaujolais, the crews specifically of Beaujolais. And so it just sort of was one of those things. I was really just eating and drinking and living French life, as you do in Lyon. And uh, I, that was just sort of it. You know, you just live and, and, you, and you end up getting all of this sort of knowledge and, and creating these friendships and relationships with people. And I, I still was not 100% sure as to what the future would hold for me. I just knew that I was really enjoying all the pieces that come together with that. So the wine, the dinners, the history, the art, all of it. It was just a really sort of beautiful melange of things. I love that. I get it. And when I moved to Europe, I was 24 and uh, I've never gone back to the States. I've been here for 30 odd years. So it is very seductive. There's something very nice about small village life in, in European countries. People can be so warm and welcoming. It's, it's really something that everyone should experience at some point in their life. And it, it does it does tend to suck you in. <laughs> a year in Lyon, I'm, I'm glad you managed to get out with only a year under your belt. What, what took you out? It was hard. I didn't want to leave. <laughs> But these little visa things come up. Uh, technicalities and documents. Yeah, it would be six years before I would go back. So wow, it was definitely a hard thing to leave and to not return to. But it's a, it's one of those things, especially for me. I didn't grow up going to Europe. In fact, when I moved to France, I had never traveled abroad at all. I'd never been anywhere in Europe other than, you know, traveling from the U.S. to Canada or Mexico. And that was sort of it. And in my family, even though my mother's from Germany, it, it wasn't a thing to have a passport and to travel like that. And even now today, as I'm in Norway, my family is still quite doesn't understand how I'm so, as my mother would say, so adventurous. <laughs> oh, completely. My, my mother didn't get a passport. Uh, she had never had a passport, lived in Ohio, uh, still lives there and didn't get a passport until I forced her to when my second child was born. So uh, I understand that mindset. She feels very happy in her hometown and sees no reason to leave it and really doesn't understand why I'm traveling around the world. So uh, sometimes you just can't explain. You smile, drink more wine. Isn't it kind of funny too? I feel like a lot of Americans, I'm generalizing here. My mother is a smart woman. She's definitely understands the world. However, she's like a lot of people, I think, where they just sort of think that other places outside of America must be sort of third world like. <laughs> <laughs> It's so true. It's like so true. village life of peasants, like really just still with strapping baskets on their backs, you know, like that there aren't just regular grocery stores. Exactly. Exactly. Well, in some ways, I'm glad a lot of people have that opinion because uh, it keeps them at home and we get to enjoy it with less, less tourists here. So um, that's that's a whole nother topic for another day. <laughs> so, so you came back and you went back to Oregon after France. What what did you start doing when you came back? Aside from crying with no Beaujolais. Yeah, I was really lucky. Right when I came
came back, Le Pigeon was opening their second restaurant, Little Bird, and they asked me to be the general manager. So that was my first real kind of big management job. It was a beast of a, of a job to take on um, as we got the James Beard Award six months after opening. And obviously there was a lot of buzz as we were opening in the first place because Le Pigeon was pretty still is yeah. popular and had won quite a bit of awards. Gabriel had won quite a bit of awards at that point. And so it was a big undertaking, lunch, dinner, doing all these things, helping with the wine list and just managing a, an entire floor like that. It was a lot of work. It was a lot of hard work and a lot of learning. And I continued managing restaurants up until I started my business. And it was great. I loved running a good floor and a good night and being able to learn so much about wine and becoming a wine buyer eventually at different restaurants. I, I think working in, in the restaurant business is, is something that's really crucial. It's like a little microcosm of everything that goes on in the world. And, you know, one learns so much. I remember my restaurant floor days very fondly. I mean, also can't remember some of them because I was so exhausted all the time. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's really a way to learn a lot about yourself and the business and about sort of human behavior as well. People behave in restaurants in ways that they wouldn't behave other places, that's for sure. We were just having this conversation yesterday because I have a hard time. Sometimes when I go to restaurants and I see things sort of wrong, not necessarily like little things. I mean, I do notice the little things, but I also sometimes still want to like get up and help. But we were with actually two sisters, which was really funny, quite young teenage girls. And one of them has worked in a restaurant and one of them hasn't. And the one who has also sort of had a similar opinion about some of the things that I did, whereas the one who has and was sort of like, it's okay, like you got to let it slide or whatever, and had just a very different opinion. And we were talking about how I think personally that every high schooler should have to go and work in a restaurant for at least six months. And in fact, you should have to work in a restaurant and get a little like certificate before you get to eat at a restaurant. <laughs> you can fully understand absolutely how it works and what goes into working in a restaurant. I, I always am curious about interviewing people who have worked in a restaurant. Anybody who applies for a job with me, if they've got restaurant background, I'll interview them just to hear you know, what they learned, what they took away from that, because you do grow while you're there. It's, it's always an experience. But you, you moved on. You moved on from there and you started your own company. Um, which is called Dirty Radish. I love that name, and I want to hear about where that came from. But what prompted you to to leave restaurants? Was it just dire exhaustion, or <laughs> what was on your mind? Yeah, I mean, you know, I I think I was a pretty good manager. I definitely have like things a certain way, but I I went into restaurants because I really love giving people this sort of two hours where they don't have to think about their bills and the kids and, you know, life and whatever. And so, you know, yes, people are very different in restaurants. I always would tell my staff, if someone's yelling at you about a piece of chicken, it's probably not about the chicken. So we have to have a little compassion. Um, but yes, I was purely exhausted. And I was also really tired of working for other people and building their dreams and not really working on what I wanted and the quality of life that I wanted. Um, definitely starting my business, the catalyst was uh, not wanting to work for other people. <laughs> and I wanted to spend more time in France. I had been hearing from people all the time about, well, your, your experience in France and when you go back is so amazing. And I don't have that. And I don't understand why. And, and I started to sort of think about it and under, try to figure out why people weren't having that same experience that I was having. And I realized it was because first they were always just going to Paris, which is 
fine, but Leon is so, so much better. And then also they were still trying to have an American experience in France. And I was like, no, you have to have a French experience in France. So <laughs> that was sort of the, the main thing. Oh my goodness, you're singing my song. I, I so agree with that. But it's Yes, people tend to carry their American bubble with them and they miss so much when they do that. So, so Dirty Radish was your way to burst their bubble, was it? Yes, uh, I realized that I had all these connections and I had created these moments where I could, in fact, give them the French experience. And so in 2017, I started the company. I had a bunch of friends over for a dinner and was trying to decide, okay, what could this look like? What, what should it look like? And how do I get this started? And, uh, we pulled out this big whiteboard and I was making dinner and someone went to grab a radish. And I said, don't touch that. It's a dirty radish. And someone said, write that on the board. So we wrote it on the board. And over the course of the evening, it kept getting circled. Um, More wine was being had, and then it kept getting circled. And at the end of the evening, I just sort of sat with it. And I really just thought about a time when I was walking through a market and there were a huge plate of uh, a huge table of radishes and they were still dirty. And I, I just thought that was so intimate that the farmer would bring it to you, but you still have to sort of go home and tend to this, this vegetable. (laughs) And uh, that's sort of the French way of like, yes, we're going to do these things for you with your food, but food is so intimate that they don't, you know, they don't even bag your groceries for you because it's like this intimate thing. And so I don't know, it just sort of stuck. And also you don't know exactly what it means when I say dirty radish. It's great. It's so evocative, that story. It's so evocative of European open air markets. That that really does, you know, come back to that whole idea of you're going to have a French experience, you're going to get some dirty radishes, and you're going to love it. So that's, I, I think that's fabulous. I like the fact that it incorporates everything you love about France in one very catchy name. Really, really amazing. Um, you, you've always said you love to assemble people around a table. You know, so how does that how does this play into your business? What are you doing? I mean, I know it's a a tour business. What does Dirty Radish encompass? Yeah, so Dirty Radish started with the idea of just taking people to France. And of course, at the time, I thought, well, who's going to pay me to take them to France? And, you know, I didn't think it was actually going to work. But in the back of my mind, I always sort of knew that it would. And then, of course, with everything happening, it's just evolved into so many different things than I could have possibly ever imagined. But the original thinking was, yes, we're going to not just... um, you know, do the high-end hotel, but there's going to be moments of staying together in a large home. And I happened to find a really large home in the same neighborhood that I actually lived in, in, in Lyon. And so it's a big house with uh, ensuite bathrooms, but they get the experience of if they want in the morning that we can go to the bakery and we order the pastries in the morning and people really enjoy doing that because we go a couple days in a row and then they get to meet the people who work there and that becomes an, another intimacy. And then I just create moments where people are gathered and get to be together. But then of course, because it's vacation, we have a lot of 
time apart as well (laughs) so that everyone can do a little bit of everything. And I just always have loved those moments, those little micro moments of people tasting something and sort of getting it now because they met the farmer or tasting something and getting it now because they met the winemaker. Um, And then of course, I always love the uh, lean back in the chair because you're so full and happy from from the meal. I love the authenticity behind that. Again, it just, it evokes everything that keeps me here in Europe. One of the things they taught us when we moved, when I moved to Lyon was go to the same places, especially because you're learning the language. I remember going to the bakery and asking for un baguette and being told with a tisk, une baguette, une, c'est féminin. And I remember being so mad at the time because how dare you correct my French? I'm American, I'm the customer, but now I will never forget for the rest of my life that baguette is feminine. But I also became friends with those people, right? Um, My butcher's name was Babette and Babette thought that because I couldn't pronounce the meat that I also didn't know how to cook the meat. So she would write recipes for me on a little card. Oh, that's lovely. (laughs) For whenever I was ordering any meats. (laughs) It's rare to find someone that connects from the States that sort of emotionally and and daily. Your clients must be so happy when they're with you. Um, I know your dinner parties are legendary, so... I'm going to have to sign myself up for one of those, come and meet you in person. I, I just I, I just want to sort of hit the, the big elephant in the room today um, because I know that you've, you've become a sommelier and a French wine scholar. You've got a lot of knowledge and a huge amount of experience running your own business and, and running other people's businesses for them beforehand. But I'm sure as a black woman in the wine industry, you faced more than your share of difficult situations when double whammy, you know, discrimination, misogyny, you know, how, how have those experiences sort of affected you as you came up through the industry to where you are now? It was one of those things I'm from Vancouver, Washington, which is just on the other side of the river from Portland, Oregon. And my mother's from Germany. My father's Creole. And so I grew up in a, in a mixed race house. So there was lots of cultures and lots of different types of food. And I, I always was aware of being Black. My family was always aware of making sure that I knew that I had to behave uh, differently. I was expected to behave differently because it was a matter of not just thriving, but surviving. Black people, I think, in the United States are taught to be behave because that can mean the difference between being alive today or not. That is that is really a harsh. And so I've always sort of known that, but I I don't walk around thinking I'm black, I'm black, I'm black. But I'm often reminded that I'm black in America and it's never usually in a positive way. And so now moving into a situation where I was mostly around not just white people, but of a certain social class, it definitely was very difficult to have to constantly prove that, no, I know what I'm talking about. And yes, I do, in fact, speak French. And yes, I have been to that winery. And yes, I am friends with that winemaker. His phone number is in my phone. And if you really need to see, here's some photos of us at his house at dinner. Oh my God, that's just such a harsh reality. But then when I moved to France, I had to actually like decolonize myself in some ways in the sense of like, oh, people aren't looking at me that way because that's not a thing in Europe. Not to say that there's not racism, but there's not necessarily the same stereotyping that happens. And I think that led to a little bit more of my feeling confident. And then, of course, as I've gotten older and now working for myself and not having to um, quiet myself a little bit, 
to just sort of keep the status quo. I definitely, I don't, I don't hold my tongue as much as I used to. <laughs> Than you. I mean, that's, it, that is just a really stark explanation of the harsh reality. I, I, the way that you explained that you had to learn to behave makes me feel really sick for my country. Um, and it is another reason why I've been in Europe for 30 years. I'm sure you can understand the same thing. It's not quite, it's not quite like that here. It's, it's just, it's tragic for me to see that you had to leave the country to sort of figure that out and uh, and learn to work it how you were want to work it you know in the rest of your life and you've obviously achieved that because now I like that you don't hold your tongue I think that's amazing and important uh, I have certainly learned over the years not to hold mine as you can tell but it does take it does take courage and it does take strength to get over being uber aware of what other people think of you well when I was working in restaurants specifically, you know, I'm busy. I'm running a busy floor. I, I don't have time to stop all of service because someone has said something off color, <laughs> to say it in, in a polite way to me. And there's a tone. There's a tone that there's sometimes people, Americans would speak to me in that I was just like, you know, they're speaking this way because I'm black. And you know, looking back on those times, do I wish I had been a little more vocal in that moment? No, but I do wish that maybe some of my employers, not to say that anyone was bad or did anything wrong, but I do wish that maybe, just maybe, those employers would have heard me saying this thing happened and maybe just, I don't know, given me an extra hour off the next day or, you know, been a little more present in some ways just to sort of say, because I'm running a floor and I'm doing these things and I'm the only one having to experience this particular type type of, of um, negativity while I'm working. And, you know, I had to change my mentality sometimes when I'm here in Europe and, and I've been telling my friends and they know I'm doing this job in Norway, but I, I have completely decided now, especially with what's going on in the U.S., that I refuse to, to live in the U.S. again as in a permanent way. That's just not happening. My whole body is so much more calm because I'm not looking over my shoulder when I'm shopping that someone's following me, which happens all the time. I'm not having to overly explain that I know what I'm talking about with wine when I meet people here. I can't imagine how difficult a, a burden that is to have to cope with every day, especially when there's absolutely no reason for it whatsoever, given all that you've accomplished and all the knowledge you have and just your basic humanity. Um, and so anytime you want to come and visit in Italy, you can come and stay with me. I, <laughs> I feel the same. I'm not going back to live in the States anytime soon. It's, this is such an interesting topic. Um, and I think it's a really crucial one these days, unfortunately. But you've been outspoken about vineyard internships, too, and, and not working for black people and not being realistic. And I just want to talk about that sort of in light of this part of our conversation. Why, why do you feel that way? And, and sort of fill me in on what what could be done in the industry to improve this because we really need this industry to diversify. Well, it was interesting right after, you know, George Floyd happened in the United States and the sort of big push of this new Black Lives Matter movement. And, you know, it was just one of those things. As soon as that started happening, people saw an opportunity to um, speak publicly, whether it was just posting something on their social media saying that they support this movement or not, or whatever the case may be. All these people whom I've known 
for a very long time. Now, suddenly, they wanted to talk to me about this, that, or the other. And now they were suddenly interested in diversifying their their tasting rooms or their wineries. And I thought, well, okay, I guess it's it's a, a socially acceptable thing to do now. But, you know, you could have done this, I don't know, a year ago or two years ago or three years ago. But I digress. And so <laughs> people were calling and saying these things, and I was explaining to them there's probably the main reason is that most people, I'm generalizing, but most people of color don't come from generational wealth. So I don't have a grandma who will give me $500, $800, $1,000 a month while I go gallivant in some vineyard working for free or very little money in order to maintain my home back home for three months. I don't have an aunt that I can call who's going to help me with that. I don't have money in the savings account. I don't have that kind of thing. So the expectation that I'm going to come and work in a vineyard for two to three months for free or very little money, keep an apartment back in wherever I live, have to get myself there, have to drive to and from, have to feed myself is a little unrealistic. And when I was telling these wineries that, the response was, well, this is the way it's always been. This is just how it's always been. And my answer to that was, well, then you won't change anything. Nothing will change. Yeah, that's that's the worst. Uh, it, this is the way it's always been is the absolute worst excuse for any situation. What do you think some solutions would be? I mean, I, I'm one of these people who, when I see a problem, um, I, I like to point it out with some solutions in mind. I don't like to just complain. I like to try and improve things. What would be some solutions to those kinds of problems? Pay people. Number one, hands down, pay people, not a minimum wage, but a living wage, the realistic wage. You want to not only diversify because you want to diversify, but because it also, let's just keep it honest, makes you look really good to say that you've diversified. It's opening up your, okay, I'm going to say this correctly. (laughs) It's opening them up to actually making more money because people who maybe wouldn't normally have noticed this winery, we'll just call it, I'm looking at it in a Nintendo, so we're going to call it Nintendo Winery right now. So Nintendo Winery has been open for 20 years. They've got these people who have been working there and purchasing their wines, but now they're showing that they're diversifying their space. It's opening them up to other customers and other people who maybe wouldn't have already known them. So now, not only me being a Black person coming in and working in your space and showing you a different way or thinking of a different way is doing, now I'm also opening your pocketbook a little bit wider and you can't pay me for my time and my my effort and my work like come on that doesn't work and then yes housing transportation and being realistic with those types of things is has to happen and this is why we're seeing such little change and such little opportunity for for people in general I think to come and do this type of work anymore yeah I think those are all really important points um I'm being nudged a little bit because our conversation is going on longer than I'm allowed, but I'm going to carry on just a little longer anyway, because I am a wine educator and I know that you are as well. Um, And you co-founded the Juneteenth Sabre Celebration in Portland last summer. Tell me about that event and and what the goals were, especially sort of the content and the takeaways for um, the people who took part. 
Yeah, so it kind of just came out of nowhere in the sense of I went to another wine event that was in New Orleans in the February of 2020, and I met three incredible women, Alicia Summers, Lindsay Williams, and Roxy Navarez, and we just kind of connected and, and really got along, and we were uh, on a on a Zoom chat, just chatting with each other, having wine one day, and it was actually, I think, just a few weeks before the Juneteenth holiday, which for those that don't know what Juneteenth is, it's a holiday in June that mostly Black people have been celebrating, which was the sort of day of freedom, if you will. Um, It's our 4th of July, so the end of slavery. The end of slavery uh, that was the, the biggest one as far as like that everybody finally found out that slaves were free. So if you don't know about that, I would say do a little more research on the actual history of Juneteenth. But we wanted to create a space where we could not only celebrate uh, and jubilate, but also educate. So educating people about Juneteenth, educating people about some of the cultural of, you know, rituals and things that we like to do during this time of year, of course. And now you'll now you've seen it in Bon Appetit magazine. Now you're seeing that people are getting the day off. Now you're seeing that, um, you know, people are celebrating this holiday in a very different way. But we just wanted to create a space for that. And unfortunately, because of COVID, we had to do it online. But we had the wonderful Julia Coney do a class on champagne and sparkling wines. We had Dr. Akila Kade speak with us about, uh, you know, just being, bringing joy into the world and uh, being Black in this world. And then we did a dance party, of course, because that's what I do, kitchen dancing. It was just a really awesome opportunity. And then the following year, Lindsay and Roxy took it on themselves because Alicia and I were just a little too busy, but they took a, did a, event, live event in partnership in LA. So that was really great. That's that's fantastic. I'm going to get a, a t-shirt that says celebrate, jubilate, and educate. I, I think that's going to be my new philosophy of life. I think it's great. Just one more question about I, the new foundation that you've joined in Willamette Valley. What's happening there? What are the goals there? What's coming up for, for you in the new year? Yeah, so I just was asked to be a founding member of the Willamette Valley Wineries uh, Foundation. Um, and what we're goal is is affordable housing. Number one is our, our first goal. Getting affordable housing in the Willamette Valley would uh, be able to expand and diversify uh, the work people can do in the valley. And so we have big lofty goals of um, raising funds to do that and creating a community where there is things like Head Start and, you know, social services, but also just, again, very affordable, actual affordable housing. And so it's a a passion project of mine for sure, but I'm really grateful and happy to be on this board and then coming from a place of we really want to diversify the Valley and create opportunities for people. Is there any way that people can contact you about that if they want to donate or get on board and, and help out? Yeah, we're in the very beginning stages. We're just filing for our 501c3. And so obviously people can find me on my website, dirtyradish.com, if they want to reach out about that. It's going to be probably another year before we really start doing some fundraising. Of course, the, the events for that will be amazing. <laughs> so, but definitely keep 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 a watch on both my website and then of course on social media. Great. Well, I hope you invite me. I'll, I'll have to come for those. Uh, it sounds fantastic. Um, I'm going to let you go, but my very last question, which I always love to ask everyone that I have on the show, is uh, what is your favorite Italian wine? You know, when would you crack open an Italian wine? 
I love Italian wine. I really do. I always want to open something um, when I'm eating Italian food, but I love the wines from Valdiosta. So anything that's from there is always delicious, that high altitude, but they grow gamay. So it's my favorite grape, of course. And so I really love the wines from there, but anything from the Piedmont really I'll drink any day. Of the week. That's fantastic. Great choice. That is an amazing way to end this conversation. And I hope I will see you either in France or over in Oregon or come to Italy and visit. Thank you so much for joining us today and being so open and honest about everything that you've done. And good luck with Dirty Radish and the new foundation. Thank you so much. Thank you again for having me on. And of course, yes, you've opened the door. So I will be visiting you in Italy. Awesome. You're welcome anytime. Have a great day and have fun in Norway. Thank you for listening, and remember to tune in next Wednesday when I'll be chatting with another fascinating guest. Italian Wine Podcast is among the leading wine podcasts in the world and the only one with a daily show. Tune in every day and discover all our different shows. You can find us at italianwinepodcast.com, SoundCloud, Spotify, Himalaya, or wherever you get your pods. guys, I'm Joy Livingston and I am the producer of the Italian Wine Podcast. Thank you for listening. We are the only wine podcast that has been doing a daily show since the pandemic began. This is a labor of love and we are committed to bringing you free content every day. Of course, this takes time and effort, not to mention the cost of equipment, production and editing. We would be grateful for your donations, suggestions, requests and ideas. For more information on how to get in touch, go to italianwinepodcast.com.